Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Punching Out. Today, we're going to be talking about the International Day of the Worker, May Day, uh, our holiday, our day. Uh, we're going to be talking about its origins, uh, the history behind it, and its continued relevance to us as workers. Uh, so joining me today are uh, Kadejo. Hey, folks. And Nadia. Hello. Kadejo and Nadia, what are your hopes for May Day 2018? Uh, not to be working. <laughs> But also, uh, I, I want to see more people recognize it for the holidays that it is. I mean, there's some history to why May Day is like the International Workers' Day. Um, but also, I've just used it as an excuse to not go into work for a couple of years. Yeah, let's, let's none of us go to work on May Day this year or ever again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be nice. I mean, I myself in 30 years didn't know the history of May Day until getting ready to record this episode. So yeah. more people definitely need to know. Yeah. So the origins of May Day are in a fairly deep in the, you know, European history, you know, pre-Christian, even arguably pre-Roman. It's a pagan holiday. Unsurprisingly, it's the, the day or the, the area of the year where spring is coming back. Uh, the earth is blooming anew. Uh, things are being born again. Uh, I just think I'm a horrible nerd because I know Walpurgis Night is the night before May Day. Walpurgis Noct is the night before May Day. And I know that because of anime and video games and all sorts of trashy stuff because oh, I'm a, a loser. Nerd. And, I am and a horrible nerd. And it preserves the, the beautiful anarchic tradition of May Day. Yeah. You erect a maypole. You dance around it. You crown a queen of May. Uh, there are dancers in the square. Morris dancers, if you're English. Uh, the Christian, the Catholic Church tried with limited success not not total success to christianize the holiday making it a holiday for uh the virgin mary uh but it re it retained a lot of its its pagan flavor uh right up through the 19th and the 20th century uh and i think that's really part of its allure for the uh the labor movement so kadejo you want to introduce us to uh why labor why may day yeah. What happened? Yeah. So um, I'm sure I, I know I actually explicitly mentioned this uh, this event before on a previous episode that uh, Nadia and I were both on, um, referencing something called the Haymarket Affair or the Haymarket Riot, depending on how you want to call it. That happened, uh, I believe it was May 4th, 1886. Yeah. Um, so before this, one of the things we have to talk about to start about this is um, this was a violent event. There's a, there was a way it happened, and because of the violence that happened there and because of how things progressed afterwards, that is why it became a labor holiday. It became this famous event internationally, and that because it was so close to May Day, they, the, the two of them got tied together. I don't remember the specifics of, like, this counts or this whoever picked it, but it was, yeah. like, internationally after this event happened, May Day also became a labor holiday. Well, because the actual triggering event for the Haymarket Affair started with a, a strike that started on May Day yeah. of that year. Is that right? 
Yeah, this is something I think you might know. The, the, yeah, so the, the ironworks factory workers got locked out and scuffled with some scabs and <laughs> Yeah, so there were there was a strike in in Chicago uh that had dated back to February. Uh so various labor organizations across the country treated that as a as a galvanizing event. Uh, and they designated May 1st as a day for a general strike. Uh in solidarity with the workers in Chicago and then, you know, with the hopes of First and foremost, attaining the eight-hour day. Uh, do either of you guys want to talk about the significance of of the eight-hour day? And uh, I, c- I can talk about that a little bit. I have a book with me. I'm gesturing to it, like you guys can see it. But I think I've talked about it before from the folks that brought you the weekend, and they talk about how even before this point, like I think it was even like the early 1800s, late in some cases, even maybe if I've got my memory right, late 1700s. There were starting to be movements for a 10-hour workday. Yeah. And stuff like that. And eventually they said, well, why are we bothering with how we can shorten it down to eight? So the eight-hour workday was a really important thing because I don't know if you've ever worked a 12-hour shift before. I have on a couple jobs. It is absolutely miserable. Um, Even eight's too many if you're yeah, asking well, me. Yeah. But the original, at that point, it was saying eight hours of work, eight hours for your own time, like for your family and whatever, and eight hours sleep. That yeah. was the way they were pitching it. And it was... Something that was growing more and more and people were pushing for more and more. Yeah, there was a nice symmetry to it. I would have said six hours for work or four hours for work and 12 hours for sleep and, yeah. you know, fill in the rest as no you... Hours you no hours for work. No hours for work. You know, we, we'll, we'll get to uh, the desirability of work as a, a Mayday project maybe later in this episode. But yeah. for now... Um, so, yeah, there was this general strike. Mayday was the day... Uh, Unions and other uh, labor rights activists uh, called for a a nationwide walkout, and it it was a nationwide walkout. Anywhere from 300,000 to 500,000 American workers stepped out of work May May 1, 1886, Uh, one of the few actual general strikes in American history. In fact, I think almost all the general strikes in American history are concentrated in this very narrow period between 1870 and about 1890. Uh, it's It's a period of very vibrant labor militancy in this country. Uh, and the eight-hour day was the uh, the centering rallying cry for this this general strike and for labor militancy gener- generally. Because like Cadejo was saying, uh, there was no standard working day uh, in the in the factories. The factories themselves were new as a concept. You know, this is these are the the first generation by and large of workers who are working under industrial time discipline, where you show up at a bell, work consistently under supervision for 10, 12 hours, six, uh, often seven days a week. Um, and so the, the, the actual time of labor was up for violent negotiation in this period. And, you know, this is a very important part of that process. Yeah. And the other part of it too, was this was a time when you had to, it wasn't like labor laws as a thing really existed yet right. either. The biggest labor laws, wouldn't, some of them wouldn't even come until later, until the 1930s. So if you wanted something, if you wanted change in your workplace, you had to get together and you had to fight for it. Yeah. Yeah, there was, it was very clear uh, that the government was going to help you. In fact, you know, based on recent experience post-Civil War, uh, the government was your enemy. They were the ones who were going to force you back to work or uh, you know, otherwise – prevent you from attaining any kind of liberation of the work sh- in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned scabs. There were places that was another thing that came. I think things like the Pinkertons too, 
were, I don't remember if they were around that early, but it was like you'd either have the Pinkertons come in to break up strikes and stuff like that, or there was a lot of times, too, where the military was just right. called down from on high to break up strikes with, with guns. That was a thing. And it's a weird to me. I know I talked about some of it in, like, AP history, but it's, some, it's a part of American history that I don't think we talk about a lot. Is that there were times where there was like violent, violent conflict over labor, especially public municipal or state level police were still relatively rare in the 1880s. Uh, most police forces in Chicago, I, I should say at this point, is the exception. Chicago does have a municipal police force, yeah. but most of the most police forces in the United States were industrial police, like the Pinkerton Agency. They were people paid, hired explicitly to bust strikes. Yeah. So that's something that I forgot to mention but it's important so when we say haymarket um specifically this is where all this goes down is a place called haymarket square in uh chicago right it happens at haymarket right yes yes sorry <laughs> <laughs> my brain just went quiet We're for a moment yeah you yeah. just the haymarket affair happened at the fish market <laughs> it was very confusing <laughs> didn't make any sense but um uh so what happened was that there was the strike going on and they decided to have speeches specifically that and like a gathering and speeches and talking about promoting the eight hour workday. Uh-huh. And that's what it was organized around. It was in response to a police attack on that ironworks yeah. strike, correct? I can't remember the name of the, the industrialist that was running that the ironworks McCormick. thing. It was like Mc, Mc, It was McCormick. Yeah, it was the McCormick works in uh in Chicago. They were a uh it was it was it was like a vertically integrated company. It was a steel company. It was a farmware company. It was one, it was one of the big employers in Chicago. Is the, yeah. the important point? And they yeah. they were striking for the general strike, and like I mentioned, the scabs before there was a clash between the striking workers and the scabs that were taking their jobs, and the police came and killed several people. Yeah, as is usually the case. Right. So the Haymarket. Uh, affair, the speeches or whatever was sort of like in response to that. Yeah, but they were also using the time I know specifically. To, like a lot of the reading I've done, they talked a lot about the, the speeches themselves spent a lot of time advocating for the eight-hour workday as well. Right. It, sure. it was a response to police violence, but it was still uh, very rhetorically disciplined in terms yeah. of messaging. They were staying yeah. on message with yeah. the, original, the original strike point. And that's that's the part where this gets interesting is because up until a certain point, the gathering was very like a peaceful thing, but there were a lot of people there. I forget the exact. Well, actually, let's back up. Who called the meeting at Haymarket? Because this is an important point. Who are the the uh, which political group? Well, I believe the people involved were anarchists, were they not? Like Nadia was explaining earlier on May 3rd at the McCormick plant, uh, which had been on strike since February, uh, police said attacked uh, a, a crowd of striking workers who had been doing battle with scabs working in the plant, wound up killing two McCormick workers. Uh, so one of the local anarchist groups, uh, composed primarily of Germans, uh, recent German immigrants to the United States, uh, notably a man named August Spies, who will figure prominently in the upcoming trial, uh, but also an American uh, named uh, Albert Poss- Parsons, who was a prominent anarchist leader, uh, called a a general meeting at Haymarket to address police violence and to uh, urge all workers in the city to walk out the next day. Uh, so the purpose of the meeting was to uh, inform uh, about the eight-hour day and to use the opportunity of the police violence to 
uh, underscore how essential uh, this moment of labor militancy was. I mean, that's basic organizing tactics, strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they, they really wanted to uh, use it as an opportunity to uh, push the general strike toward uh, more radical ends. So I think there's something we should cover really quickly here before we go any further, and that's to define anarchism, especially anarchism of that time period a little better. Because uh, speaking as someone who has a lot of anarchist friends and maybe a little anarchist tendencies uh, <laughs> themselves, uh, it's better to define it what it was in that era because a lot of different people have different definitions for what anarchism is. So, so yeah, anarchism, anarchism in this period, uh, you know, it's still being hashed out as a as a political theory, um, but in, in its core essence is not that different from you know common understanding of what it is. It's about uh, eliminating coercive structures of government, uh, replacing them with cooperative structures uh, for the economy and for uh, organizing society. Um, but what really set anarchist theory in this period apart was their analysis of uh, the coercive power of the state and of capitalism in general. Uh, they argued that the state capital were a form of everyday violence. Uh, and the only way to resist violence, to meet violence was with violence, uh, of their own. So this is where the anarchists really set themselves apart from other radical groups in this period was their commitment to what they called propaganda of the deed. Yeah. Uh, what this idea was, was, uh, targeted acts of violence against, uh, state figures or figures of capital uh, would inspire workers to uh, overthrow the entire structure uh, while also, you know, clipping the fangs of capitalism. So in this period, you see, uh, for instance, Alexander Berkman, a prominent uh, anarchist, try to assassinate Henry Clay Frick, uh, Andrew Carnegie's uh, uh, chief lieutenant in Pittsburgh. Uh, Leon Cholgosh, another anarchist, assassinates an American president. Uh, an Italian anarchist assassinates the king of Italy. Uh, anarchists in Russia assassinate the, the Russian Tsar. Uh, so the, the bomb-throwing anarchist, the violent anarchist, becomes kind of a stereotype in this period. And just yeah. like now, when we talk about terrorists, it gets got overblown, way out of proportion. But you know, also it was capturing a real moment and of yeah. uh, labor militancy and philosophy on uh, how to best uh, overthrow capitalism. I mean, some of those events, like the uh, McKinley was the one, right? McKinley, yeah. That doesn't come until after this. But it, uh, the interest, there's an interesting local tie in that Emma Goldman, uh, who worked or was sort of partners with uh, Berkman, lived in Rochester for a little bit. She so, did. So there's your local tie, folks. Yeah, she knew she knew Berkman was trying to kill Frick. Uh, they worked together on a. I thought she was in, like more closely involved. She, yeah. It's one of those hazy It's one ones. of those, I'm sure, <laughs> sure didn't try to advertise it all that much. But but to say that it wasn't like, it was everywhere and it was a thing, particularly the propaganda of the deed is a phrase I've heard used a lot. But it, at the time, it makes sense, especially when you find that the, I don't want to sound like I'm encouraging it, but at a time when just everything was so openly hostile to you as a worker, it it doesn't, it isn't surprising that it gets to the point where people are saying we have to defend ourselves however we can. Right. And, you know, the day before Haymarket, you know, like we just talked about, police killed two workers dead. That wasn't unusual. Uh, strikes were violent affairs. And oftentimes it was workers who bore the brunt of the violence from these 
heavily armed, organized, either private police or in the case of Chicago, public police. So Nadia, do you want to take us through the events of the the night of May 4th, 1886 and uh, what happened there? So the anarchists, Parsons and Spees put together the general meeting at Haymarket Square. They were giving speeches. It was all very peaceful. There's different accounts on how many people were there. Some say 100, some say a couple thousand. But by all accounts, it was a generally peaceful situation. Uh, Towards the end of the night, people were leaving. It was a smaller crowd. Parsons was on the stage giving a speech, and a bunch of cops showed up. This is also in debate how many there were. Could have been 20, could have been 200. But either way, they showed up and basically tried to shut the whole thing down. And Parsons said, we're being peaceful. There's no reason to shut us down. And then someone threw a bomb. And this is the part where everything goes off the rails. And this is where everything goes insane. A bomb was thrown. Shots were fired. uh, The situation got out of hand. Um, the the important we'll, we'll we'll try and go through the details here because m- much of this is still historically unresolved. Like we don't know who actually threw the bomb. Yeah. Uh, we have some ideas. We don't know who made the bomb though. Again, we have some ideas. Um, we don't know who fired their shots first. Uh, but you know we know that gunfire was exchanged. We knew uh, at the end of the day, you know, five cops were dead. 70 or more of the the people in attendance were seriously injured, you know, in the aftermath of the explosion or the, the, the exchange of gunfire and Spies, Parsons and six other uh, German anarchists were arrested uh, in the aftermath of the, uh, of the, the bomb explosion in Haymarket. So um, things get obvious as it's probably pretty clear from the way we're talking about it. Like, it doesn't get called a riot until much later, but the Haymarket Affair, everything about it is just kind of in the, the haze of labor war in history. Yeah. Um, the next day, a bunch of people get arrested. Uh, Spees gets arrested. Parsons gets arrested. A couple um, people who work for Spees at his, at his press get arrested just for being associated with him, although one of them was at the rally briefly just as an assistant or whatever. Um, among the other people who are rela- uh, arrested are a guy named uh, Louis Ling, who is uh, known to be part of this anarchist collective. And the problem is they find active bomb-making materials at his apartment when they raid it. Uh, there's another fellow uh, whose name is eluding me. It's Schnaubelt? Rudolf Schnaubelt. Yeah, Rudolf Schnaubelt. Um, this is also suspected of helping to make bombs and might have even been the one that threw it. Uh, flees the country. Never gets caught, disappears off into the weird back pages of history. I want to pause here and actually talk about Albert Parsons because he's he's such a fascinating uh, character to me historically, and you know his, his involvement in these uh, events is, is singular. Uh, as you might can, might have been able to tell from the names, most of these uh, participants were German-born. I believe out of out of the uh, eight people officially arrested and put on trial, six of them are German immigrants. Yeah, six are German. Anarchism uh, is primarily a movement among America's European immigrant population, of whom there's overwhelming abundance moving into the country at this point. Parsons is the rare exception. He's a native-born American. He's, in fact, born in Alabama as a teenager, fights for the Confederacy. Uh, but after the Civil War, 
becomes a full-throated convert to the Republican Party and its brand of anti-slavery politics and racial integration. And his experience in Texas after the war, trying to settle free men uh, in an equitable way, leads him toward increasingly radical politics. So by 1886, he's already uh, a committed uh, committed anarchist. So just want to underscore that remarkable journey that Parsons took. 1861, he's a Confederate soldier. 1886, he's standing on trial for his life uh, because of his alleged participation in an anarchist plot against the police of Chicago. So um, that's fascinating. That's actually a lot I did not know about uh, Parsons. So one of the things I think I've already alluded to it with Chanel Belt is um, before we even get to them being on trial, uh, a couple of things happen in the immediate aftermath. In the next couple of days, eight people are arrested specifically. One person, Schnaubelt, gets away. Um, the first thing is, and I'll say this now, I think we've already alluded to it, no one actually knows who threw the bomb. Schnaubelt is under a lot of suspicion, especially because, you know, he chose to flood the not only the country, I'm pretty sure the continent. Yeah, he went back to Germany and yeah. never heard from again. Just disappeared. So he's under suspicion. There are some people who think it was the Pinkertons who actually threw the bomb. Um, because it was not unknown, unheard of for people like the Pinkertons to sneak in and sabotage labor movements. Um, there's all sorts of people who are under suspicion. There's a lot of really, if you dig deep enough, there's some pretty funny and I will say stupid conspiracy theories about who did it. But at the, especially at the time of the trial, no one is absolutely certain who threw the bomb, and we still aren't. Um, the yeah, other- there's not a not a, a specific murder suspect yeah. ever identified by the prosecution. Uh, there's just a lot of potential uh, bomb throwers, uh, and no one specifically identified as the the murderer of the the police that day. Yeah, and that leads to the other reasons that the, and the trial is not fair and other things. The other thing that happens is immediately, and this happened so much during that time period. The same thing happened after Berkman tried to uh, assassinate Frick, is the strike pretty much fizzles out as a result of this, and there's a massive wave of anti-union and anti-anarchist sentiment that comes up. And anti-immigrant sentiment, you know, anti-immigrant f- you know well, fueling yeah. and kind of flowing through both. Yeah. Uh, immediate, the immediate reaction is, oh, this is, this is horrible violence. The community comes out to support the police who don't, who don't deserve it, and especially not in this case. And it just, again and again, it happens that the big strikes sort of get hampered in this. I don't want to say hampered because it's not the strike's fault, but something violent happens. And instead of saying, hey, why did the police react violently? This in other cases or hey, this is just someone acting on their own. Or why did the police provoke violence, which is yeah. what happens here yeah. at Haymarket. It's, there, it's them who charge into the crowd. Yeah, uh, It's not like the anarchists were seeking them out. Yeah. And I mean... <clears throat> The response, like a lot of people beyond just the police get hurt in this, too. I don't want to forget that because the police choose to open fire into the crowd. Right. We didn't um, mention that specifically, or I didn't, when going over the events of the, the Haymarket affair is that, yeah. like, when the bomb was thrown, it was thrown, it went off, and the police response was to just turn around and start firing into the crowd. And yes. the defense does make a plausible argument during the trial that a number of the police who were killed or wounded were shot by their own fellow police in the. Uh, the confusion of the and the aftermath of the bombing. Yeah. Yeah. And while we're on the subject of like the immediate aftermath, uh, I just as a, a non-history buff, I was sort of blown away by the immediate like militant response 
of the public police, like declaring martial law immediately, like uh, shutting down the newspapers, like all this stuff that, you know, to a modern day person as myself sounds insane was just like no big deal. That was the thing they did. Yeah. And um, it's weird because you get this cross up, right? Is like, especially in our, I don't think we realize now how militant our police are compared to the past. Um, but in a, in a way, it, it goes in waves almost. Like the police, before the police were an institution like they were back then, it was like the people who got called in most of the time were like the state militia or these private police. And it's like, especially there where there's no accountability, the police violence is so much higher. And then for a while, it's not quite as bad. And then we're back now in a different way to the police being incredibly militant. And so like the police having this really violent response in my mind doesn't seem that out of proportion with the things I've seen in my lifetime. Right. Um, I guess but at the just, same time, different. you're different right. Response. At the same time, you're right. It's different because if a pa- uh, the police try to shut down a paper nowadays, I can't even imagine. Right. It, was, it seemed more like like huge steps were taken and that was more in your face. Like now, like police militarism is oh, like almost sneakier. Yeah. Feels sneakier. Yeah, um, there's limits because there's more ways to hold people accountable. Um, but but yeah. I, think, I think any of us who are, have been involved in, you know, public protests, which I, I hard to imagine anyone listening or participating in the show hasn't been. I, th- I think you've experienced firsthand uh, what happens when armed, particularly in riot gear, police show up in phalanx formation uh, around the edges of uh, protests. Uh, so peaceful. That's what makes peaceful protests become tense and anxious, and uh, maybe tilting over into violence. It's the actual active presence of the police as an intimidating force, and I think that's a big part of what happens at Haymarket. Is uh, what had been a peaceful, if you know, angry and firebranding kind of affair, uh, as soon as the police comes up, come up, yeah. explodes quite literally yeah. uh, because of their presence. Yeah, and it's funny too, is that you know. I've heard this someone someone mentioned uh, someone called this is a bit of crossing this over with local history when someone talked about in the 1960s what some people call here race riots I heard someone else call the Rochester Rebellion we call it the Haymarket Affair but the immediate response was from the public and especially the police is to call it the Haymarket Riot Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is when the police get involved it's always oh well it's the people involved like. A, a riot, calling something a riot is a way of delegitimizing it. It makes it sound disorderly. It makes it sound uh, like there's no order or purpose to it. When, like we've already laid out here, this was a, a crowd listening to a speech uh, in the middle of a strike. Uh, there was no call to violence. There was no call to uh, any kind of movement. Uh, so, you know, calling it a riot was a way of removing agency from the the people participating in it and uh, making it seem like they didn't have a legitimate place in public, which of course they did. Yeah, and that's and that's something that's very uh, noticeable in the investigation afterwards too, or at least in the way papers cover it. They talk about saying that this was an event meant to incite people. Uh, mo- a good chunk of the people who get ar- like out of those eight that get arrested, I-, I think only two or three of them were actually at the event. Right. Um, Parsons was the one speaking when it happened and there were some even deeper papers trying or not papers trying to insist on a deeper level that some words in Parsons speech were the incitement to throw the bomb, which is just it's hoke. It's hokum. 
Right. Yeah. That that's the big conspiracy theory is that there was a signal and, like and, a and yeah, a coded message in Parsons' speech. And when he when he said those words, that's when the bomb was supposed to come out. But of course, how could Parsons have known when the police were going to charge in and yeah. uh, you know time that perfectly with whoever was waiting in the alley off the marketplace with his uh, with his homemade dynamite bomb. So. I think at this point it's good to take a little bit of a break. And uh, when we get back from the break, we'll start to talk about the trial itself and why it was an absolute, um, an absolute mess and absolutely unjust. If you're listening to this on the radio, congratulations. It's the exact middle point of the work week. If that doesn't make you feel any better, try listening to more Punching Out. All our past shows are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. Today we're talking about May Day, the Haymarket Affair, and the continued significance of May Day as a labor holiday uh, globally and here in the United States as well. Yeah. So we find ourselves at the the sort of pivotal moment of Haymarket where everything goes from kind of bad to really a lot worse, and that's the trial. Everything about this trial is just rigged absolutely against the the people involved. Um, the judge is openly hostile through the whole trial to everybody, all of the defendants. Um, anybody who mentions so so much as mentions unions or socialism when they're brought up to be picked as a juror, uh, a member of the jury, is just tossed. And the bailiff supposedly just picks people that he thinks will find the people guilty. And just to be clear, you know what they're they're being charged with conspiracy to commit murder without the state ever having identified a murderer. Yeah. So they had their suspect, Schnaubelt, like we said, Schnaubelt's long gone, uh, but they nonetheless went ahead with the conspiracy prosecution, uh, arguing that you know even without the murderer, uh, you could still get the co-conspirators yeah. uh, in the case. So uh, this was, not only was the, the judge biased and the jury uh, stacked against them, but the charge itself was flimsy. Yeah. Uh, also, to be fair, uh, one of the defendants, Lewis Ling, was caught in a bomb-making yeah. rig he had in his apartment. <laughs> August Spies publicly bragged on numerous occasions about his experiments with dynamite and how he learned to use a gun. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of bad looks uh, for the anarchists. And uh, in my opinion, I do think you know they were in some way involved in the, the bomb throwing. It wasn't just something that uh, one lone wolf showed up at Haymarket and uh, had a bomb ready to go, but the evidence against them that such a thing happened was non-existent. Yeah, and the other part that's really, um, that when the prosecution went after them, the part that really rings thing uh, rings to me is really uh, hollow. Um, is the the accusation that they they were part of the conspiracy to throw the bomb because they hadn't actively said enough not to right. throw a bomb, which is such. Absolute bunk. I don't even have words for it. But the trial goes on. Hundreds of witnesses are called. It goes on. And eventually, uh, oh, I almost forgot. The, the, the particular reason that the people who get found guilty and get sentenced to death at the end of the trial get sentenced to death is a particular meeting that happened the night beforehand. Yeah, so on, on May 3rd, 1886, there was a meeting in... Uh, Greif's Hall, which was the the headquarters of the you know the the International Labor uh, Party, which was the German anarchist group to which Spies and the rest had belonged, 
um, the prosecution alleged that uh, the leadership and several other participants at that meeting conspired to throw the bomb at the Haymarket meeting the next day. Uh, so just based on whether you attended this meeting or not, determined whether uh, the jury sentenced you to die or just to uh, an extensive term in prison. Uh, one of the, uh, I believe it's his name is Niebe. Oscar Niebe. Niebe. I don't know how to say German stuff. I'm on Polish and Scottish by ancestry. Um, he gets off because he wasn't at the meeting, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Uh, Fielden gets off because he wasn't. Yeah, Fielden was one of the leaders, uh, one of the few non-Germans participant, but he also was not at the meeting. Uh, so he gets a jail term, but he doesn't get sentenced to death. So five people do, uh, Spies, Parson, uh, Georg Engels, and Ling. And Adolf Fischer. And Adolf Fischer. Um, but one of them doesn't even make it all the way to when his, uh, his execution. Uh, Louis Ling somehow smuggles in a blasting cap and decides that he's going to take his own life rather than be hanged. And dies what we can only call a particularly metal death. Yeah. So he, he takes the, the blasting cap, which was the, the, the ignition for dynamite stick, which had a small charge of explosive in it, uh, put it between his teeth, cracked it, and blew his face off uh, and spent the next six hours in, as you can imagine, pure agony. Yeah. So yes, very metal death, <laughs> uh, very agonizing death for poor Mr. Ling. Uh but a, a gruesome demonstration of his commitment to bomb-making to the very end. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say, he was he, he and supposedly, I believe, Engels as well, were the most, like, radically radical of the group. Right. I make it sound like skateboarding there. <laughs> radical! Yeah, Ling was real gnarly about bomb-making. <laughs> no, it's good. We'll keep it. It's perfect. Um but yeah, uh, so the rest of them uh, unfortunately go to the gallows. Um, anybody who goes in to witness the execution, including um, Lucy Parsons, Albert Parsons' wife, who will be important later, um, they get uh, searched down for bombs. And as, as several articles I read have said, uh, no bombs were found on any of these people because, <laughs> of course, they're going to make that distinction. Well, the bomb makers are all in prison at this point. Or, or uh, disappeared into the ether. Or, right. or in Germany. to make bombs for them. Yeah, or were missing half their face. Anyways. So, <laughs> just to back up real quick, there was an international campaign to pardon the, the Haymarket Eight. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, there's, there's a, a separation of uh, some, some, some years between the trial and their, their execution. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the state of Illinois to pardon uh, the Haymarket prisoners. The, the labor presses in particular make the Haymarket uh, eight later to be the Haymarket martyrs, their big cause, yeah. uh, and you know, advocating for their, you know, pushing the idea that this trial was unjust, that possibly it wasn't even an anarchist that threw the bomb, it was the this agent provocateur, some yeah. Pinkerton, uh, stirring up the the pot. Um, but you know, some some were pardoned or not pardoned, their sentences were commuted uh, at the time. Uh, the governor of Illinois, Alt Geld, in 1892, would ultimately pardon the survivors. Uh, but for the for the the four for Fisher four plus Ling yeah. uh, in in the jail that day this was this was curtains yeah so Fisher's Angle uh, Spees and Parsons go to the gallows and they uh, unfortunately I don't know if you know this about hanging but the idea of when you the trapdoor goes is that the 
pull of it breaks your neck, so you die quickly. None of them are that lucky, and they die the slow way. I'd, I'd go so far as to say the police knew how to make the knot in such a way, or the hangman made the knot in such a way that didn't break their necks. So well, it, was, it was a punitive execution. It, it, it is not a pleasant thing to watch or to see, and they died horribly. I see there a lowering, a right new coffin. I see there letting down a right new coffin. Way over in that union burying ground. And the new dirt's a falling on a right new coffin. The new dirt's a falling on a right new coffin. Way over in that union burying ground Oh, tell me who's that they're letting down, down Tell me who's that they're letting down, down Way over in that union burying ground Another union organizer, another union organizer, way over in that union burying ground. A union brother and a union sister, a union brother and a union sister. Way over in that union burying ground A union father and a union mother And a union father and a union mother Way over in that union burying ground Well, I'm gonna sleep in a union coffin. I'm gonna sleep in a union coffin. Way over in that union burying ground. Every new grave brings a thousand new ones. Every new grave brings a thousand members. Way over in that union burying ground Every new grave brings a thousand brothers And every new grave brings a thousand sisters To the union in that union burying ground Hey, hey guys you know that feeling you have at work? That dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LP FM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. All right, welcome back to Punching Out. We're talking about the Haymarket Affair and the significance of May Day as a holiday. 
we just, in our last segment, talked about the trial and subsequent sentencing of yeah. the Haymarket 8. Uh, so. Yeah, so, like, this becomes such a watershed moment. Like I, I was saying before, the immediate response from, like, the public and a lot of close stuff is this very heavy wave of anti-anarchist, eh, anti-anarchist sentiment uh, sort of swells out. But what happens in the long term is this is a radicalizing moment for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Not too long after this, the AFL picks up um, the eight-hour workday and says, hey, maybe that is something we should fight for. And so they appeal to what I believe is the second international abroad and say, hey, May 1st, we should call for a general strike for the eight-hour workday, and that is the first real May Day is a labor holiday. Right, yeah. So May Day in 1886 had been kind of like an arbitrary start day. It was the first of the month after some organizing had been done. But because of its association with the general strike that fed into the uh, the Haymarket bombing, uh, in the aftermath of the Haymarket trial, May Day becomes uh, the day for the eight-hour day and then for all you know labor causes and from here on out. Yeah. And it's an important thing, too, is the, the bombing becomes this radicalizing moment. And, well, not just the bombing, I should say. The Haymarket Affair and the trial in the aftermath becomes this radicalizing moment for a lot of people. I talked a little bit earlier about Emma Goldman, and we talked about Berkman. Emma Goldman uh, worked with Berkman. They were both, you know, they associated with each other, and they, all this stuff, they worked together to try and assassinate Frick. The moment she says she was radicalized, this, one of the most famous anarchists in history, one of the things she says that really started to radicalize her and move her towards anarchist, anarchism as a, a philosophy was the Haymarket affair and the fact that these people hung for nothing, in her opinion. Yeah, I mean, what, what more blatant illustration of everything the anarchists had been saying all along about the coercion implicit in state and capitalist power uh, than you know, the fact that they executed... Uh, you know, the Haymarket martyrs for their participation in this, yeah. uh, this event. And it goes a little bit further, too. It's interesting um, getting into further labor history. There's a group called the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. There are two very important people in the beginning of that. Um, and the Industrial Workers of the World, just to back up for a second, is, uh, is the idea of one big union. It's the idea of the workers you need to unite and take charge of everything themselves um, and all sorts of other, basically everything about unionism and anarchism blended into this one wonderful little organization. Um, and two really interesting people are influenced by the, by the fallout of the Haymarket affair. One of them is Big Bill Haywood, who is sort of, Big Bill is the name. He is the, one of the central figures of the IWW. But the other important person and one of the founding members is Lucy Parsons, the uh, widow of Albert Parsons. The two of them and a bunch of other people go on to found the IWW and the IWW is very important in the 1900s or the 1910s up through the 1920s and a lot of labor movements in the US. And to, still exists as an, in, an international organization today. Um, I have a friend or two who's a card carrying member of the IWW. Yeah, not quite up to the, the height of the, the 1900s, 1910s, but still I think a very admirable yeah. uh, organization. And one to which we should all aspire. Yeah. So what, one one consequence of this affiliation between the May Day anniversary and labor radicalism is that uh, 
more conservative labor leaders and government leaders uh, start to find May Day too radical. They start to back away from the anniversary of the Haymarket Affair as a cause worth celebrating. Uh, so this is actually why in the United States and in Canada, uh, our Labor Day is in September. There's some precedence to this. The first Labor Day in the United States was a Knights of Labor holiday a few years before Anar- uh, before Haymarket uh, that was celebrated in the first weekend in September for the uh, perfectly reasonable uh, reason that uh, – <laughs> <laughs> It's fine. For the perfectly – uh, sane reason that September just had nice weather. Uh, so September was affiliated with Labor Day before then. But it really was uh, conservative leadership in the AFL, particularly Samuel Gompers uh, and his oh. lieutenants, who uh, pushed for recognition of a Labor Day, but not for the Labor Day, which I think we'll all agree is actually May Day, Yeah, uh, which is why we're having this, this moment to honor the day. I'm going to say something quite radical, and I'm going to say there is nothing wrong with having two Labor Days. I think every day is Labor Day. Yeah. And we should celebrate the days we get off. Yeah. All right. Um, but it's also funny to think about because uh, I don't think the 40-hour work week becomes law until almost the 1930s. Uh, which would be the idea is that, you know, you have five days of work of right. eight-hour days and two days where you're not working or right. however you want to arrange it. Forty hours is a full week and anything past that is overtime. There's there's a patchwork of of eight-hour laws in the United States. Nadia, if you want to talk a little bit about some of them. Yeah, so in <laughs> Illinois specifically, I think it was about 20 years or so before the Haymarket Affair, there was legislation passed basically making the eight-hour day law, but there were so many loopholes in the legislation that it was basically unenforceable. So the Haymarket martyrs were fighting for rights that they technically already had, that they just weren't being given. Well, the the, other, oh, sorry. No, you can go ahead. The, the federal government um, had mandated an eight-hour standard for its own workers and for people working on federal contracts before. Um, during World War One. you see railroad workers... Uh, given by law an eight-hour day. Yeah, uh, the not... actual fulfillment of the eight-hour day as a, a societal promise comes yeah. much later. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, especially in the U.S., things get so wonky because <laughs> there's, there's state law and there's federal law. So in that case, like, technically the people in Illinois had it, but that's not the case everywhere. Right. And there's still parts of this country where uh, right to work is still a thing. Like, there's... Um, Labor law in this country is continuously patchy, especially talking about the Wagner Act. I believe it's the Fair Labor. The Fair Labor Standards Act 1937 is the law, which is still in the books, that establishes the 40-hour work week, which is, like Kadeha said, the eight-hour day yeah. as the standard. So anything over 40, 40 hours is considered full-time. Anything over 40 hours is overtime to which you're entitled to extra compensation. Yeah. And this is the part where I just start getting really, really irritated because um, a lot of that, uh, I think you still do get overtime, uh, but it's only if you're working for the same place for more than uh, 40 hours a week. So if you're like, I'm sure everyone who I'm in the room with, and I'm sure many of you listening is, you've worked jobs where you've worked 50, 60 hour weeks because you weren't working at all at the same place. You didn't get overtime. If you're working two, three, some people I know have worked four jobs at a time, um, you don't get those benefits. And that's an episode in and of itself someday. But um, it's one of those things that I think comes back to 
The difference between then and now is we're not militant about it. But there's so many ways. Laws can only go so far. You have to con- consistently fight to keep those things there because we've defined full-time, yes. Full-time, if you work full-time, if you work past that 40 hours, you get overtime pay. But And you get benefits. A lot of places guarantee benefits as well. But places like Walmart were some of the uh, first people to push this. Is That's why so many positions are part-time now or not quite full-time, so that way they don't have to pay the benefits. They can just hire more people on it full-time or part, hire them on as part-time. They don't pay the benefits, and a lot of us end up just working more than we would. And Yeah, I think our lived situation now where you know the eight-hour law is on the books, but in practice we all know that doesn't really apply as it should, really pushes the, the essential insight of the anarchists of this period. You can't trust the good faith of the state to – uh, behave justly toward you. You have to put, install your own structures and manage them yourselves in order to ensure uh, that you're living a, a just and liberated life. You can't trust the state to uh, to bring those things into being for you and then you know keep them in being for you. You know we had this brief moment of labor liberalism during the New Deal where it did seem like the state was labor's friend. It did seem like the state was committed to upholding labor peace on laborers terms and what happened to that yeah i i think i said this the last time i talked about the haymarket affair on the show is that i think sometimes we forget that some of the things even the bare minimum what we consider now and saying like hey we barely have these rights anymore but back in the day for good i'd say almost 50 years specifically like starting around the 1870s and going up into almost the 50s People literally shed blood and died just to get these basic rights. And that's why the Haymarket martyrs became martyrs. People were willing to put their lives on the line. People got unjustly killed so that we could have these rights, so that we could be guaranteed, you know, like I said earlier, there was the eight hours of sleep, eight hours of play, and eight hours of being at work. This is what was part of the uh, the speeches and the the just general literature and talking points of the eight hour workday so that you could balance your life and work. So much of that is undermined now. And my fear is that we, we forget that people died to get us these things and that we might have to stand up. And I'm not saying I want to put my life or anybody should have to put their life on the line, but we have to work together and understand that it's going to cost us a little bit of something to get back what we deserve. Uh, yeah, there's no, I don't know where to, to add it in. I just, I was going to mention that, uh, you know, mandatory overtime is a thing that's allowed. That's insane. So, you know, people, people died for these rights that we have now that we barely even have. Yeah, they've been wallpapered over. They've I'm been sh- wallpapered over. Yeah, if you're, you know, I think it might have something to do with right to work laws. I'm not a labor law lawyer yeah. or anything. And but- that's, that's the other frustrating part too is like I could have taken and I might still taken my education in a place where I study labor law as a degree like to be to know your stuff these days to know everything you need to know to really fight for this stuff you got to know everything at once right and you have to have the time to to defend yourself when you're also having to work 10 or 12 hour days six days a week yeah 
so this seems like a good place to take our third break of the hour and give people a little time to digest everything. And when we come back, we'll talk about what we think the future of May Day and the future of labor movements should look like. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. I hope you're enjoying today's show about the origins of International Workers' Day. This upcoming Tuesday, May 1st, Rochester DSA will be hosting a May Day celebration in the original spirit of the holiday. There will be food, music, and a sense of solidarity among workers all around. That's this Tuesday, May 1st, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Universalist Church on South Clinton Avenue. Back to the show. So Cadejo and Nadia, you know, now that we've talked about the history at great length of the Haymarket Affair and the eight-hour day as a concept and why May Day continues to have significance uh, for the labor movement, what, what do you think the future of May Day as a center for uh, thinking about a better future should be? Well, one of the things I'm always going to push for, and I will push this for, like I said, there's nothing wrong with having two labor days in my opinion. I think to have it definitely be a day that you get off. And if you don't get it off, you get paid for being there extra. I know there's like, it's like holiday pay, but you should seriously get paid more if you're forced to work on this. Okay. So you mean like an actual, treat it like an actual national national holiday, like a second Labor Day for May Day. I back that completely. There there are no federal holidays between Martin Luther King Day and Memorial Day. Uh, May Day would be the least they can concede to us. Yeah, Yeah. give us one more, you guys. Oh, and Labor Day should be the same way. I mean, it already sort of is, but I think more so. I call for a labor month uh, or a labor summer from May to September where no one works ever. (laughs) That would be my – well, more seriously, I think – the eight-hour day, you know, as we talked about, it, as, is at this point effectively inoperative uh, because of the nature of precarity and you know the abundance of part-time work in this country. Most people work significantly more than forty hours uh, if they're lucky enough to have you know work. Um, they don't get overtime for it. They don't get recognition or benefits in addition for it. So I think there should be a reinvigorated uh, eight-hour day campaign. Uh, that guarantees at the minimum or at the maximum, I should say, eight hours of work uh, at the same pay. Uh, and then also uh, eight hours as a starting point. Because yeah. even I I would argue eight hours is way too much work. Yeah, I would like to see a work day that's significantly shorter than eight hours become uh, the moving strategy of the yeah. labor movement in the United States. Yeah, sure. I think there's there's a lot of good places to jump off of this too. Like, I know my own issues with ADHD and other neurodivergences. And for other people, like, six after six hours, I legitimately have trouble keeping myself together. And I know for anybody else who works with other disabilities, be they mental or physical, working with those, if you want to work, you shouldn't have to work with them, but you do. It's just the reality of the world we live in. Um, having that eight-hour day is, <laughs> is far, far too much. It's definitely too much. I mean, really doing, you know... Uh, everything in moderation, right? Anything, doing anything for eight hours. You know, my job is fairly cushy. I sit at a desk all day and I happen to be lucky and I have a standing desk so I can alternate between sitting and standing. But 
doing either one of those things for eight hours is is <laughs> terrible. My back is killing me right now. We have to wrap this up so I can go <laughs> take some aspirin because like, <laughs> I had to work all day. Yeah. So I think this is definitely a subject that I want to explore further and, and like give it an episode itself. But I think for now we're uh, running out of time. So uh, my name, as always, is Cadejo Jones. You can call me Cadejo. My name is Rich. Thanks for listening. And I'm Nadia. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, your bosses aren't listening, but we are. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.